We talk a lot on this podcast about chess improvement, but when it comes to improving your hiring processes, Indeed is the platform you need. Indeed has over 350 million global monthly visitors, and it has a matching engine that helps you find quality work candidates fast. You can use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with your candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree that Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. Years ago, when I was running a chess teaching business, I found it hard to find good help, and I had to go through a lot of back and forth to even screen potential candidates. Indeed allows you to do those things efficiently in one place. Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed for hiring, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of Perpetual Chess will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility if you go to Indeed.com slash chess. Just go to Indeed.com slash chess right now, and you'll be supporting our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast, Indeed.com slash chess. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Perpetual Chess. We are going to bring you a second tournament report podcast. The idea of these tournaments is for a couple of guests to share their reflections on a particular tournament, the lessons learned, the experiences they had. The hope is that by taking a micro look at one particular tournament, you learn lessons that can be applied more broadly. You can feel the feelings that the people had and learn the lessons along with them. I did a tournament report podcast with different guests in late June of 2023 on the National Open uh, with some different amateurs. That one was well received. So we're going to do another one. And as long as you guys like them, we will do them a few times a year. Uh, This particular tournament is Alto at the Charlotte Chess Center in Charlotte, hosted by Peter Giannatos and his team, always doing groundbreaking stuff there. Alto stands for at least 21. So this is the rare tournament without scholastic players. It's kind of a one-off, although this is the second time this year they did it. Um, I know that this is the second time we've done a U.S.-based tournament, and I definitely want to get a global perspective on different tournaments, so I promise the next one will be from somewhere else in the world. 
So to share their experiences playing in Alto, both at and away from the board, first up, we have friend of the pod, Fide Master, Nate Solon. A lot of you may read his blogs, Wishenzug, which is always insightful. You may have uh, heard him before. Data scientist, Fide Master. Um, he actually won the tournament, which is just crazy. Uh, that's not necessarily the idea, but what can you do? Nate's good at chess. Uh, so he's got a lot of great insights. And the second guest is James Brandmare. James has gotten into chess much more recently in the past few years. Uh, but he's all in on chess. I've exchanged a few messages with him over the years. He's reading lots of chess books, listening to lots of chess podcasts. He's even getting involved at the grassroots level where he lives in South Carolina. He had a decent result in the under 1600 section of the Alto section, as you will also hear him discuss. Um, the last thing before we get you to the interviews is a call to action. So as I record this on Friday, September 8th, I just signed on the dotted line to make my first chessable course. It's long overdue. I'm excited to make my own course. I don't want to say too much about the topic of the course, other than that it's tactic-based and it's for newer and lower-rated players. And I would like to use original material as much as I can for this course from amateur games. So actually, if you're rated below 1500 Lee Chess Rapid slash Classical or 1300 USCF slash chess.com, I want you to send me your games. So... Um, they don't have to be brilliancies. They don't have to be annotated. I'm interested more in quantity of games than quality of games. So if you'd potentially like to have your, your games featured or game or two featured in this course, please send them to me. My email address is ben at perpetualchesspod.com. In terms of how to actually send it, there's several ways you can do it. If you know how to email a PGN, you can just email me a PGN. You can also share a Lee Chess study or chess.com library with me. If you're playing primarily on Lee Chess, actually all you have to do is send me um, your handle there and I can get the games myself. Um, I'll also, of course, be gathering games independently. Oh, and of course, if you have a file of tournament games, all the better. But basically, I want these games to be rapid or classical, not blitz. Um, no bug house, none of that. But other than that, um, again, I just kind of like to sift through the games myself and find some cool material to present some ideas. So again, to review, if you're under 1500 Lee Chess, the 1300chess.com or thereabouts, it doesn't have to be exact, have some rapid classical or OTP games you'd like to send me, email ben at perpetualchesspod.com. And of course, that's my email address for other inquiries as well. So hopefully I hear from some of you, it would be great to get my hands on some amateur games. But uh, without further ado, um, I want to get you to these interviews discussing at least 21 Alto down in Charlotte. So we got some fun interviews coming your way. The timestamps for when the interviews uh, occur, as always, are in the show description. So first up is FM Nate Solon. Let's get you to it. And as promised, we are here with friend of the pod, data scientist, blogger, author of the new 100 Repertoire Ready One Night F3 series, returned to his residence in Nebraska from Charlotte uh, and won the Alto tournament, by the way. Uh, welcome and congratulations to FM Nate Sullen. Welcome, Nate. Hey, thanks. Great to be back, as always. Yeah, yeah. And so for listeners... Nate and I had planned this before he went and played the tournament. And of course, my sort of vision for this new series of podcasts is to um, share the perspective of sort of an amateur player 
who goes and plays the tournaments, the ups and the downs, the lessons learned. So the vision of this series is not really that someone goes and wins the tournament. So Nate's kind of ruining it by going undefeated and winning the open section. But but we'll forgive you, Nate. Well, I think I, I told you before that like my preparation is what it is. And depending on how it goes, I'll come on and either say like why, you know, I was such a genius to organize things this way and like why everyone should copy me or why it was a total failure and why everyone should do the opposite. So I guess this time we're we're living in the, you know, the first reality. Um, I don't know if you believe in like the multiverse or whatever, but <laughs> right. you know, things things sort of broke my way this time. Yeah. And you, of course, were one of the top seeds. So it's not a total shock. But I mean, you're 38 years old. You had your first kid within the past year, your first classical tournament since having a kid. So having been through that myself, remembering all the sleepless nights and the sort of feeling of brain fog that can develop when you have a baby at home. Um, I just find it all the more impressive. Were, were you yourself surprised uh, at, I mean, A, the results, but also like, how do you assess how you played? Um, yeah, definitely surprised with the result. Um, I did not, you know, winning the tournament was not one of my goals going into the weekend. It was more get back into the swing of tournament chess, catch up with some old friends, um, you know, get some experiences that would really enrich my coaching. Those were my main goals. Um, obviously, I wanted to do as well as I could, but I certainly wasn't like going in expecting to win the tournament or anything like that. And and so I looked at your games. I could give my own impressions, but how do you assess how you how the games actually went? Did you just feel like everything was clicking, or more like things just broke your way? Mm, yeah, not really. I would say it was like the games were fairly back and forth. Um, I think my play was like, I would say definitely uneven, like pretty scrappy. I think I found enough good moves and like sort of fought hard enough to give myself a chance. Um, but at the same time, I definitely wouldn't say my games were like smooth. I made a lot of mistakes. Um, you know, I think, I think there were a lot of spots where I could have played a lot better. Okay. Yeah. And for listeners who may have heard my recent interview with NM Todd Bryant, um, that was a fun interview. So definitely recommend anyone check it out, especially if you're interested in improving your own game, if you didn't hear that one. Um, but so Nate, if I correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe you roomed with Todd there and also played him and that game in particular seemed, uh, I reviewed that one. It seemed pretty topsy turvy. Yeah, that was very chaotic. And you know, I really wish, uh, your episode with Todd had come out a week earlier because I, I listened to that and it was great, but I did take note that he um he revealed that he had like some secret opening prep on secret <laughs> online accounts, which I did not know about. Um we were paired in the second round. So we were, you know, 30 minutes before the round, we were each in the hotel room, each on our own queen bed with our laptops out, you know, <laughs> trying to outguess what the other one would do. But uh my read on Todd is that like he's an inveterate open Sicilian player and he just always plays his stuff, you know, and he has like thousands of online blitz games in these lines. So I was preparing my open Sicilian is black and then he played E4, C5, 2, Knight, C3. Uh, so all my prep kind of went out the window and he kind of uh, got the drop on me from the opening. Um, I mean, then it went on to be a crazy, um, crazy game with a lot of like really interesting tactics. I missed um I missed a fantastic defensive resource that could have been winning at one point, but um it ended up being like a 
I had just enough to, you know, I, I, I had some tricky defensive moves to force a perpetual check. Yeah, it was um, it was fiery for sure. And in reviewing the game, I saw that it ended right, as you said, with a perpetual check right around move 40. Um, but I couldn't tell the extent that the clock played in the game. Um, how was your time management both in that game and, and more generally? Mm, I think my time management was okay. I think I believe I was ahead on the clock in all my games. Um, although I would say, you know, on this one move, where I missed this great resource. I think the clock played a role, not not in that I didn't have enough time, but that like perhaps I was trying to play too quickly on that move because I think I still had about half an hour at that point. But I had played my knight to b4 intending to go back to d5. He played a move allowing me to take a bishop on d3, but it looked like it looked like I couldn't do it because his rook and queen were coming in and it looked absolutely crushing. But I actually had I could sort of counterattack his back rank and it would have led to a winning endgame for me. And I actually, I played that move knight to d5 very quickly, but I actually saw the resource with knight d3 just after I moved. So if I had paused for just a moment there, I maybe could have spotted that before and and taken advantage of that. Um, in general, yeah, I would say I was ahead on the clock most of the time. I was even... Um, I was struggling a bit, I would say, with like the how slow the time control was, just in that um, you know, I haven't played a classical tournament in over a year, so I just wasn't used to like what I even wanted to do with all my time. I felt like if anything, I was probably playing too slow, but my opponents were playing much slower than me. And there were like several moves where my opponents thought for like 20, 30 minutes plus on one move when I thought nothing much was happening, just like normal opening positions. And so, you know, I was mostly sort of walking around, not at the board, but it did actually kind of take me out of the game. Like I felt it was difficult for me to get back into the game and start calculating again after that. So like one thing I have to think about is how I want to deal with those scenarios where my opponent goes into the tank for like such a long time. You know, do I want to sit at the board and try to calculate? Do I want to walk around? Um, how do I sort of keep my mind in the game in those scenarios? Yeah, this is something that I feel like has changed over the years. I know that I am Dean Epolito was at the tournament. Um, I don't believe you played him. Um, but when I interviewed Dean, he talked about how like because he's really he's still trying to make the Grandmaster title. Um, he really, when he plays, he's really trying to maximize every moment. And that, you know, that includes away from the board preparation. But he was saying he also forces himself to think on his opponent's time. And I try to, especially as a time trouble addict, I've tried to sort of um, take that that wisdom to heart. But as someone who's able to play instinctively, and I, of course, have learned, like you you wrote a blog post about time management that I think about frequently and have learned from. So it's interesting how like, there's, you know, it's hard to find the right balance, basically. Like, it's, you could either be too, you're so relaxed like you are that you move quickly and walk around or like, you know, so obsessive that it's also counterproductive. Yeah, I think, I mean, different people have different strategies here. I, I don't see walking around as like, you know, like a guilty pleasure or something that I, that I do, even though I know it's a bad strategy. I think like, it's it's just not realistic to be calculating at maximum strength for like a solid four hours without a break. So I don't really, I don't think that should be what you aim for. Um, you know, some people prefer to stay at the board more. Some people prefer to walk around more, but like, 
I don't think you should necessarily feel guilty if you're someone who walks around. I think, well, I mean, th this is like a whole different thing about like time controls and like how long chess games should be. But my impression from this and every other tournament basically is like, no one I see uses their time. Like no one actually uses all the time they have in a classical game to do real stuff. Like people just sit there for like the first hour <laughs> and then they start playing. So, so I don't like, I I don't think I, I'm not really seeing anyone who's just calculating like ferociously and accurately for all of their clock time. Um, so I, and I do think there's something to, you need, you need to be able to relax between the games, during the games, at least to some extent to, to be able to actually focus and concentrate in the moments where it really counts. That's interesting. I, I'd like to hear a discussion between you and Dean on that, because having played him, I do get the impression he's working hard the whole time. And I know he works on his fitness. But to me, it does. I mean, I I understand like my, I'm someone whose mind wanders to begin with. So I do force myself to sit at the board. But I also understand that at times I'm not going to be fully focused and certainly not calculating, especially when it's my opponent's turn. But but as you say, it's uh, it's tough to know definitively. Yeah. I mean, like I've even heard, you know, Anand has, has said like, you know, sometimes it's just like, just like relax, see what they do and then decide how you're going to respond. Um, yeah. That's I've also more, more like my approach. Yeah. I've also heard advice like you calculate on your turn, but think more big picture on your opponent's turn. Um, you know, there's, there's all kinds of possibilities and we're not going to be able to solve it completely uh, within this conversation. So, but Nate, let's talk about like what it felt like to actually win the tournament. I mean, a lot of people listening, like we'll, we may win a section, but to actually win the open section of a tournament, um, that may be something they never experience. Is it like a major um, milestone in your mind or is it just as one of the top seeds? Is it more just like things went your way? Uh, you know, you win a thousand dollars for it. So obviously nice, you know, probably basically pays for your trip at least, but not life changing sort of thing. Where does it fall for you? Yeah. It, you know, this particular tournament had a sort of odd, surreal quality to it. Cause especially, I mean, you know, just early on, I was just playing my games, whatever, you know, trying to, trying to score as much as possible, but especially going into the last round, because uh, going into the final round, I had four and a half points uh, with one or two, other, or excuse me, I think four points with one or two other players. And Dina Bell and Kaya had four, she was in clear first with four and a half. Uh, but I had white against her in the final round. So it was like, you know, an absolutely must win scenario. I had to go all out for the win uh, because if I won, I would win the tournament. If I drew, I would get, you know, second, probably tie for second. So it's like the most clear cut must win scenario you can imagine. But but the way it lined up like that, um, you know, against Dina, who's like this incredibly like famous and like glamorous, like chess celebrity. And with the white pieces where like one of the things I was doing this tournament was actually using my repertoire for my for my chessable course as a kind of, well, partly as a matter of, of practicality, since I already knew it and I had to prepare a black repertoire too, but also as a way to sort of test it out um i don't know i just I, I just had this odd sense that everything was like cosmically aligning in a weird uh -huh. way that was a little like 
you know, it was like someone had written the plot to like the Queen's Gambit season two or something. It's like, this is a, this is all a bit on the nose. It's, it's starting to feel a little weird. And so we know you won the game, but like, how did you feel like your opening went in that game and, and what led to that crucial victory? Yeah, I think the opening actually, the opening went well. All my openings, at least with white went pretty well. So that was really interesting because I was literally just playing my chessable repertoire. So I was obviously concerned that my opponents could prepare because everything I was planning was completely out in the open if, if they just wanted to look at the course. Um, I don't think anyone did that. I don't know if they weren't aware of my course or they just didn't have time or didn't have care or didn't care or what. Uh, but I did just use the lines for my course in every game. And I really got great positions um, from the opening, including against Dina. Um, I got, uh, she went for a sort of Slav type setup and... Um, we went into a position that was like almost symmetrical, but I had a lead in development. We both had a weak pawn in the center. Um, if I played it a bit more precisely, I actually could have won a pawn with a great position. So I could have gotten a huge advantage out of the opening. I didn't quite find the right sequence, um, but the way it played out, I had some nagging pressure that really kind of just, I was able to keep going through the middle game and into the end game. And finally we went into this end game where I still just had a little bit of a nagging edge. We both got quite low on the clock. And um, finally, I was able to to win this endgame after we both made a few mistakes. Yeah, the Rook and Pawn endgame was pretty interesting. A lot of sort of, um, a, a lot of subtlety in it. But it's, you know, it did seem like you always had the upper hand. It just wasn't clear, like, are you going to be able to win or not? Yeah, and it's it's funny as well, because um, Eugene, like uh, my, my co-author on my book, GM Eugene Perlstein, when I was talking with him about creating a training plan for this tournament, based on the time control, one of his big points was you have to practice playing practical endgames under time pressure because that's what's going to come down to. Um, unfortunately, I ended up largely blowing off that particular piece of advice because <laughs> um, I had a lot of uh, uh, struggles with childcare and other stuff leading up to this tournament, and I really had to pare down my preparation plan. Uh, so I tried to go with the... Uh, the win before the end game plan, but um, against Dina, I was not able to do that. And it actually came down to, to exactly the scenario Eugene said. So uh, I guess he was right about that one. So that's funny. Well, he was right, but you didn't have to do it. Maybe <laughs> I did, you know, I did actually, I played, I had one session with Eugene where, where we played some, some practical end games in um, with like a rapid time control. And it was, it was only one session. It was quite a ways before the tournament, but I think it actually, you know, it did help me because there's a certain feeling to playing those end games on short time because it's really, it's a delicate balance between calculation, intuition, general principles, kind of juggling all those things. Like there's there's a real feel to it. And um, I wouldn't say it's my strong suit as a player by any means, but um, I think like playing those games helped me. Nice. Yeah. And so, Nate, age 38, you got a new USCF high rating. Congratulations. So it's it yeah. seems like me and uh, Todd Bryant might need to record an addendum because uh, it's it's amazing what you're doing, especially in this uh, potentially deflationary age. So mm -hmm. I know we've talked chess improvement before, but do you, do you have uh, any prevailing theory for why you're sort of able to sort of buck the odds? Mm, well, um, you know, by playing in a tournament with no kids, I might have dodged uh, a certain <laughs> amount of deflationary pressure there. So um, there's always that. I think um, I would say I try to be like 
pretty creative and um, unprejudiced, I guess, in terms of like what works and what I do with my training. I think um, in chess, uh, there's a lot of um, mm, conventional wisdom. I don't, you know, old wives' tales, maybe, I don't know, old husbands' tales, whatever you want to call it, of uh, what you're supposed to do um, as, as far as training. Uh, I don't know how much of it is really right. I, like, I think. I think blitz is good basically if you do it right that might be one sort of contrarian take i have um i think some opening study is good if you do it right um so i uh you know and i do i think for me i'm kind of being in touch with chess in, in terms of like coaching and looking at chess even when i'm not um specifically like like working on my own game help helps me get not too rusty at least okay and do you know what's what's next on your calendar? Are you going to get a chance to play again anytime soon? Mm, I don't have anything booked, but I definitely want to because I was not seeing this as a one-off. I really, I really do want to get back to playing somewhat. I mean, I don't think I'm going to be able to play every month or anything like that because it is tough for my schedule. But I would like to play certainly more than once a year. And, um, you know, I kind of figured the first tournament, if anything, would be the hardest. So now that I've done this one, I would like to like sort of keep the momentum going and, uh, you know, I think there's this sort of shape you get into when you play tournaments more regularly, where you're able you're able to be um, more relaxed, more focused at the board. Um, you kind of iron out some kinks in your opening repertoire. Uh, it really helps to play tournaments regularly. When we come back, we will hear from Nate about what the tournament was like away from the board. We'll be right back. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. And we are back. Nate, so we've talked a lot about the actual tournament, but of course, uh, part of the reason I decided to highlight Alto in particular is we're friendly down with the the members of the Charlotte Chess Club. Uh, shout out to Peter and Grant and then the whole team. Um, and I have played the previous one. I know it's such a pleasant tournament. Um, did you get to do much socializing in between rounds? Like how did you and how did you treat that uh, amidst this tournament that you ended up winning? I did a little, um, well, yeah. So like, like you said, um, I was sharing a room with, with Todd. Um, so that was cool. You know, we were able to hang out and talk a lot of chess and I, um, yeah, I, I met some people I had already met or some people I only knew from Twitter. So there was one, um, there was one night where everyone got a free drink ticket at the bar. So, so we were hanging out. Um, I had, um, my, my friend JJ from Nebraska was there. So it was, it was a little weird that we both went from Nebraska there, but, but we got to hang out a little bit. Um, I did not actually, my plan going in was I was going to have that one free drink and no other alcohol was kind of my plan. I did get sort of peer pressured into, um, uh, a few other drinks. Uh, my, my friend, Natasha Christensen, who I know from when I, when I lived in Boston, we had dinner. And she she got everyone to order 
this this restaurant we went to had these old like it was a smoked old fashioned. So they had some little gadget where they were like inserting smoke into the top of the drink and then it sort of like wafted off. Nice. We all had one of those. And then um the night, you know, when the tournament was over, like I had a few beers with with Todd and JJ and just kind of relaxing after the tournament. So that was fun. Excellent. And I'm guessing not much sightseeing in, in Charlotte. <laughs> No, they're actually, I, I would have lo- loved to go over and uh, see the club. So the tournament wasn't at the club. It was at a hotel. So I would have loved to see the club or some other stuff, but they're really, I mean, you know how these tournaments are with two rounds a day. There's really not a ton of time to, to get out and do stuff. Yeah. Makes sense. But overall, a positive experience, would you say? Yeah, I would say it was great. I mean, I really asked around as far as what would be a great experience for me for my tr- first tournament back. And so many people said, this Alto tournament was their favorite. And I would say it like, you know, it was as advertised. It was really well run. I had a great time and got to see a lot of friends. So, so it was a great experience. Excellent. And as you, as you've written about on your blog and as you discussed, you got to play your repertoire, um, aside from your own games that you now have played in a one, uh, night F3, what sort of feedback have you gotten on, on your new chessable 100 course? It seems like people like it. Um, uh, like, like it seems to be pretty popular. It's getting good ratings. So, I think the the reception has been um, positive, and I'm hoping. Uh, I feel like this is a pretty good endorsement of it because honestly, I I didn't really know if it would work for me to play the lines because mm, this is not really a repertoire I designed for myself. It's not something I already played. It's really it's really designed from the ground up to be a repertoire for club players. Um, like a lot of the choices are based on um, the online stats from amateur games and what works at more of an intermediate level. So there's that. And there's also the fact that it's it's very short. It's 100 lines total, which is like really quite a lot shorter than most opening repertoires or books. Um, so in a sense, this approach is not really supposed to work at the, at the master level. Um, but it really did work. Um, I mean, you know, I went in believing in the lines, but even for me, it worked surprisingly well, like three and a half out of four with the white pieces, a win against a grandmaster, a win against a woman's grandmaster. Um, I'd say I got great positions from the opening in all four games. So um, it kind of exceeded expectations for me. Yeah. And I should say, by the way, Nate has sent me the course and I checked it out myself. And I have to say, like, I get what you're saying about it. It's obviously less weighty than a lifetime repertoire. Those are uh, voluminous. But, uh, you know, you've written a couple times about how, like, you know, you can learn it in a short period of time. Um, I still felt like it was deeper and a bit more concrete than I expected, maybe just from having heard you talk about it. Um, I mean, it's it's a yeah. great course, but basically I'm saying I spent a few hours on it and I'm far mm. from finished. Mm, sure. Well, it is... Um... Yeah, I would say it's not um it's not a it's not really a system repertoire, meaning when you think one night f three, you might think of like the King's Indian attack, um, where some people essentially are planning to play like the first like six moves, like pretty much the same, you know, knight f three, g three, bishop g two, castles, d three, e four, like absolutely no matter what. Um, that's not what I'm doing. There are, you know, there are some move orders, there's some move by move subtleties. Mm, you know, we're we're sort of re- reacting to different black setups to try to pose black some problems uh, early on in different ways. So there are some concrete details that that are a little tricky. 
but I do, you know, I do really try to like explain the motivation behind all that and like what we're doing in the course. Yeah. And, and by the way, Nate, I know you'd also written about some questions about what to do with your black repertoire going in, particularly against D4. I know a bunch of people chimed in on Zwish and Zug, your blog, offering suggestions you didn't necessarily want to reveal before the tournament, uh, what you settled on um, in case you ended up playing someone. Um, so what was the resolution of that storyline? Like, uh, obviously, the results were good, but what did you end up uh, learning? Yeah, so actually, both of my black games were really funny. Um, I had four whites and two blacks in this tournament, so that was a bit of luck. But my, my first black round we already talked about was against Todd, where I had um, um, black, and uh, I was expecting him to play the open Sicilian. Um, you know, for this tournament, I actually never had to reveal... Um, which open Sicilian I was going to play. So yeah, I was wondering about I, that. <laughs> I guess I can, I could even keep that a secret, but honestly, um, who knows if I'll even be playing the same thing at the next tournament. And um, well, my whole right, white repertoire was like on my chessable course for anyone to look at. And I don't think anyone did. So, you know what? I'll just, I'm just going to, I'm going to do a big perpetual chess reveal. I was planning oh. on playing the Kalashnikov. That was my oh, big plan. Okay. Um, I was, you know, I, I was using uh, Danny King's, course on chessable as well as just some, some of my own research um so i was ready to play that unless you know unless you're a future opponent in which case maybe this is like an elaborate bluff that i'm doing right now <laughs> um, but i was ready to play the kalashnikov um and then as far as um black versus well i guess maybe, maybe i can just say like briefly why why i was ch choosing that is like yeah you know, I think if you like to play like somewhat dynamically and you like to play for a win as black, the Sicilian's nice because you're going to imbalance the game. But I kind of, I kind of like to go for one of the slightly more obscure Sicilians because I feel like if you go for the knight or if like you're really guaranteed to get your opponent's best shot. But if you go for one of the ones that's not quite as as front and center, you can catch people um, a little more off guard. But like. There are a lot of good Sicilians, you know, like the Sveshnikov's great. The Tlashnikov, I think, is good. The Taimanov is fine. Um, these are all good options. Um, I went for the Tlashnikov because I think it's it's a little bit less move by move. There's fewer forcing lines where a lot of stuff gets exchanged. And it's it's more it's a little more about like understanding the structures and how to play certain pawn structures, which was which I think suits me a little better. Um, so yeah, that was my choice versus e4. Of course, Todd didn't go for the open Sicilian. He immediately went for this obscure knight c3 and then bishop d5 line. So it's pretty much scrambling like like right away there. But uh that was that. And then against uh d4, I decided um I was going to go for the semi-slav, which is an opening that I've always felt should suit me, but has never never really managed to get it work, get it to work for me in practice, at least in blitz but I kind of wanted to take another shot at it. And um, I was using Sam Shankland's course for this. And But but this game was funny as well because this was my other black game. And I had black against David Vigorito, who's um, an IM, also an, an old friend of mine from, Bo like I lived in Boston for a while. He's he's from the Massachusetts area. Um, so I had black against him. And my plan with the opening going into this tournament was to like, prepare a narrow repertoire and just, you know, use it. So I wasn't going to, 
I wasn't going to try to like learn some weird new opening to target my opponents before the round. I was just going to play my repertoire. So it was all locked in. But the thing is, um, David literally wrote a book on the semi-slav. Right. So it was like a little bit awkward that like I was locked into playing the semi-slav against the guy who wrote the book on it. But I didn't, you know, that was my plan. And I didn't really have another choice. Uh, and he did go for one of the most like topical theoretical lines. So in the line he went for, I, I knew from the Shanklin course, I knew this like 25 move force drawing line. Um, but not much else because when I do these courses, I usually only do the quick starter and then some, you know, I'll go back and fill in some of the rest of the stuff, but I really, in the full course, there's like a lot of details about what happens if white deviates from this line, but I didn't know any of that. So it was a very weird game because I was playing quickly, like playing my side of this force drawing line. David, I guess, so he wrote this book, but it's been a while. So he was going slowly, like finding his way at the board, but I didn't really know if I want, like, if he just played all the moves, it would be a draw. But if he played something different than what I knew, um, it might be a mistake, but also I would have no idea how to deal with it. And I would just mm -hmm. have to figure it out. So he did end up deviating like around move 20. And I would like, at that point, I was actually like so angry at myself because basically at that, it was this insane imbalance position where I had no intuition about what to do. And like, I was really just like hating my life and like so angry at myself for how stupid my, my opening preparation was. Um, and I did... I did sort of start to go wrong a little bit, but then I found some good, like I, I kind of didn't play the best way. If I, if I had reacted as well as I could have, I could have gotten, well, according to the engine, a big advantage, but the position was still very weird. Um, but I was starting to get into trouble, but I found some good moves. I found like an exchange sack followed by a piece sack, um, that looked very weird, but, but did turn out to be the best course of action. And if he had responded correctly, it would have been a forced draw, but um, at like essentially the very last moment, he chose the wrong king move. He, he could have moved his king in two different directions, and one would have led to a forced draw, um, but one lost, and he happened to choose the wrong one. So, yeah, it was I, quite quite a weird game. It was sort of like the whole game was really compressed into just a few moves, um, and uh, yeah, that that's how it played out. I, I did see that game, and yeah, the, some of the backstory is fascinating because I was struck by a few things just sort of when I played through the moves and was piecing it together myself. One, I, for for one thing, I, I didn't realize that that uh, I am Vigorito had written a book on on that very opening, which obviously is an important uh, contextual detail. But one, I was just impressed as I played through the moves, like how deep into theory you were considering what you'd written about how you were uh, making, you know, how you were designing your repertoire uh, going in. And then, yeah, obviously, as you say, it devolved into that sharp, uh, sharp position where he went King E1 instead of King G1 and it was GG's. But, um, but yeah, it was a fascinating game to follow. Yeah. And he probably, I mean, the semi-slav is an opening where there, where you do have some of those very long forced lines. Um, I think there's something like 37 lines in the quick starter for Shanklin. So like, you know, I do actually, I know some people just use chessable as like a book, like they read it once and like go on their way. I do actually do the spaced repetition thing. So, you know, that's why I was able to remember that line. But uh, 
you know, while I like basically I, I knew a lot of moves in that line. Um, as far as like knowing alternatives or really understanding what was going on in a conceptual level, um, my preparation was was really not good in that case. And so that's actually something I really want to like improve upon. I think with the white pieces, because I designed the repertoire myself. I had a much richer understanding because I knew the alternatives I had considered and I knew why I made the choices I did. Um, but when you do someone else's course, it's a little easier to just like remember the moves and sort of gloss over the details. Yeah, for sure. It's a constant struggle. Well, Nate, um, as, as we wrap up, I mean, again, super impressive. Uh, great that you got to have a good time and win the tournament uh, as well. Um, but nonetheless, are there like lessons, as you just alluded to, like one one thing you want to work on increasing your understanding of new openings in addition to just sort of knowing some moves, but any other sort of takeaways of uh, things you need to work on? Hmm, yeah, well, so one is having um, like a deeper understanding of certain openings and actually you know, I I think I came up with this sort of methodology that I'm going to try that I think is going to work really well for me. Um, and that's just question and answer. So what like, so what I would do with that line, you know, when I go back and revisit it, well, well, so, so this comes from what I noticed is like, when I was sitting at the board, I had a lot of questions I didn't know the answer to. Like, what if he does, you know, there's, there's one move where like, in the line, I knew I have this pawn that's hanging that he's just not taking. And I was sitting at the board, and I was going, well, like, what if he just takes that pawn? Like, aren't I just going to be like down a pawn? Compared I hate to that feeling. Um, <laughs> I've been there. So, so I think what I need to do when I'm learning and reviewing these openings is really push myself to ask more questions. Yeah. So for a long forcing line like that, um, what I want to do is actually force myself to ask a question on every move. Ah, that's a you good know, idea. Either with the course or with the engine or answer it with whatever means are available to me. Um, and I think that's going to enrich my opening knowledge quite a lot. I mean, of course, that's going to be slower. But I mean, the thing is, there's not really like a free lunch when it comes to chess knowledge. Like, sometimes, it, you know, it just takes time to get the knowledge that actually works. Um, but you know, you were asking me about like, what, like, what do you have to do um, to, you know, to continue to improve at an older age? I think this is like a great example of, you know, I'm not saying this is going to like single handedly reverse rating deflation. But I think this is like, this is a studying technique that I think very few people are doing. I'm pretty confident it's really going to work for me. So I think it's really important to like be honest about your weaknesses, get creative about how you're going to address them and like really kind of create some sort of training plan that can actually work. Um, and often that's, I think what a lot of people are doing does, does, does not really meet that you know, hit that level. Like you can't, you can't just go through the motions. Yeah. And it's funny because I've, you know, this has come up in some of my interviews. I always think of uh, one with the uh, Grandmaster Hare Krishna in particular. Um, and, um, and I wrote about it in my chapter about uh, opening study in my book, but it's, it's the classic divide, you know, it's still when I'm reviewing my moves on chessable, it's like you, you really have to be hyper vigilant to make sure that you are in sort of an active mode rather than, than just, uh, rote playing moves. Yeah. And you know, chess, I think, um, this is a feature. I don't know how many people even know about this. Most people don't seem to use it, but there is, um, there is actually like a question answer format built into chessable on any position in any course there's like a discussion thing. Like you can go down under the board and, and write a comment or ask your question and answer it. 
So I think I'm going to use that to, um, like, like every question or every comment I have, I'm just going to write it in there and then like other people can interact with it. Um, I think that's just like a nice way to keep my notes tied, tied to those positions and, and to be findable where they're relevant, but also maybe to like interact with other chessable users. Um, you know, maybe they'll have some ideas that'll help me. Yeah, that's a good point. And I'm, I'm aware it's there, but I, I never use it. And as an author, the authors probably appreciate it because if you're wondering, probably someone else is wondering and, you know, they knowing the answer, it's probably not a ton of work for them to explain an idea and it makes their course better going forward. Um, yeah, absolutely. I mean, as an author, I definitely let, like the more people interact with it actively, um, I mean, the better. That's great. And I, I also just um actually did this morning, I just finished recording a video where I just went through um, the openings in my in my four white games and just kind of did a quick recap of like like how my opponents reacted, how I played where I could have actually improved a little bit um, to just kind of, you know, show everyone like how that repertoire played out in practice and go a little bit deeper into the middle games and uh, and how the games developed. Nice. And is that uh, for the course or for your YouTube channel? I think what I'm going to do is just, I'll just post that on my YouTube just, um, just because that's a way to, it's a convenient way to host it. Um, but you know, I'll link it from the course and from everywhere. Sounds good. All right. Well, Nate, I mean, like I said, it's really inspiring. I mean, it, it's, it's really cool to see. I mean, obviously you're extremely knowledgeable, um, and there's tons to learn from, from your writing generally, but as you've alluded to, uh, in your own writing, like to have you like in the arena and showing that it can be done uh, definitely uh, motivates someone like me. So um, congratulations and um, thanks. Thanks again for coming on. Do you have any uh, closing thoughts? Um, no, just th yeah. Thanks for having me on, Ben. Um, I mean, thanks to, to the Charlotte Chess Center. It really was a great event, um, really well run. And, and I think everyone had a, a really good time. Yeah. And I haven't checked in with them, but presumably they'll do another one in March. Um and, uh, you know, Peter, I, I know they were right on the cusp of reaching 100 participants. Peter Giannatos, the founder of the Charlotte Chess Center, had been on Twitter saying if they got to 100, he would buy drinks. If they didn't, he wouldn't. Well, uh, what was the resolution of that? They did They did make it um, on, on the night before the tournament. It was 95. And then I woke up in the morning and it was 101. Uh, I believe quite a few of those last second entries were, in fact, um, Charlotte Chess Center employees. So I think... Um, I think Peter might have put his finger on the scale a little bit there, um, you know, to get everyone a drink. But I was going to say, I thought he was bluffing anyway, but <laughs> uh, yeah, we did end up, we, we got our free drink ticket in the end. Glad to hear it. All right. Well, Nate, uh, thanks again. And yeah, hopefully maybe I'll even see you at the next Alto, but if not, obviously we'll be following you online as always. So congrats again and uh, catch you uh, online. Please stay tuned for a fun interview with James Brandmare about what it was like to travel to and compete in the under 1600 section of Alto. We'll be right back. And we are back. 
And we are here with James Brandmeier. He is a dad, a newer chess enthusiast. He is the president of the Columbia Chess Club in, of course, Columbia, South Carolina, vice president of the South Carolina Chess Association. Uh, he, as we will discuss, got back into chess um, or really into tournament chess uh, after the Queen's Gambit, but is someone that I've corresponded a bit with online. So I know that he's he's knee deep in it now. He's all in. He's uh, reading books, listening to podcasts. I was reviewing his tournament history. He's playing a lot. So when I saw that he had made the trip from South Carolina to Alto, I thought he would be a good person to put a voice to a name and to hear the details behind this tournament. But first, let's welcome James Brandmeier to the podcast. Welcome, James. Hey, Ben. Uh, Honored to be here. Yeah, excited to chat with you. So we'll get into the Alto tournament itself um, momentarily. Um, but James, you're rated in the 1300s. You had a great result. Congratulations, playing some tougher competition. Um, but um, before we get into that tournament, could you just briefly describe, as you were to me moments before we started uh, the formal interview, what got you into tournament chess in recent years? Um, sure. Um Let's see, when I met my dad, he taught me how to play the the game of chess when I was 10 years old. And I've always kind of known how to play since then, but never really took it seriously. I would always just do daily games on chess.com. Um, but I realized that it was taking more time than I wanted to in comparison with a lot of my other hobbies. So I kind of decided to give it up with the coming birth of my daughter. And um, fast forward nine months. I'm on six weeks of paternity leave, and the Queen's Gambit comes out. My wife knew that I used to like chess, and she wanted to watch it with me. And from there, while I was on paternity leave, we would play chess in the mornings and drink our coffee. And then I would I went back to work, and I wanted to play some stronger people over the board because I got the uh, the bug for it again. And that's when I met my coworker Paul Copeland who is related to national master Sam Copeland, and he's a very strong 1600 player. And he got me uh, got me up to speed with competitive chess, invited me to my first chess tournament, which was the Carolinas Classic held by the Charlotte Chess Center in 2021. Oh, cool. And Sam Copeland, of course, helped me out with the very first book recap, Mikhail Tal, back in the day, and has an excellent chess YouTube channel and knows his chess inside and out in addition to being a strong player. And if you you don't mind my asking, James, um, where do you and uh, Sam's Sam's brother work? Um, Paul no longer works there, but we uh, work together at Westinghouse Electric, where we make uh, nuclear fuel assemblies for the fuel reactors. Okay. Uh, wow. That is uh, heady stuff. Um, could is it harder or less difficult than chess, would you say, James? I would say that uh, chess is a lot harder than making wow. uh, nuclear fuel. Less dangerous, though. I, I, yes, I definitely. Think. Yes, yes, a lot less dangerous. Okay. Well, well, we're, we're glad that you have found found a safer um, use of your extra time now. So, James, I, I was looking through your tournament history. I know you've been making decent progress and playing a ton. Uh, what prompted you to make the trip up to Charlotte for Alto? Um, I just realized it had this, it hadn't, it's been a while since I had traveled uh, to Charlotte to play some chess. Um, also, I'm getting, I kind of use Alto as like a prep for our state championship next month. And um, 
I've recently started a study group that's been helping me a lot uh, improve my game. And I kind of wanted to see where I was at. Um, and as you mentioned, I do play a lot at my club. Uh, every week there's rated games, but those players, they are very used to how I play. So I kind of wanted to see how I would uh, compare to a, a different pool of players. Okay, that makes sense. And did you, so going in, did you have like explicit goals, the certain things you were trying to work on or more of a sort of carefree approach? It, kind of kind of a carefree approach because whenever I go to a tournament, I'm always kind of content with the fact that I'm never going to be fully satisfied with my preparation. Like I won't solve chess before a tournament. Um, but I have been working on being uh, aggressive the proper way or like how to gain an advantage. And so I kind of wanted to, to test that out. How'd it go? Um, for the most part, it, re- it went well. Uh, I learned in two of my games uh, that I need to pump the brakes and just <laughs> kind of milk the advantage the right way instead of just going wild and sacrificing pieces. Okay. Yeah. I saw, You had sent me your game against Scott Hanlon, um, which was a nice win from the black side uh, for you. And obviously we can't go into too many variations, but I was impressed with this when you pushed Harry the H-pawn. Um, you know, he, there was basically a position where it's not necessarily called for, but in a very sort of alpha zero like fashion, James uh, correctly intuited that it was a good moment to pawn storm his opponent's king. Um. Yeah, and uh, in a lot of my games, I was really paying attention to the pawn structure and trying to just guide my pawns to kind of aim at my opponent's king, uh, grab the center when appropriate, and and as you're right, see the, the right time to push that H-pawn to open up uh, my opponent even further and maybe even promote. Yeah, and you mentioned, James, that you'd been to Charlotte before. What other tournaments had you played there? Um, I've played in two Carolina Classics, and I've done, uh, I think, a couple G45s that they run on Saturday-only events and uh, maybe a couple reverse angles. But my favorite tournament that I went to with them was the uh, 2022 NC Open, which runs alongside the U.S. Masters. Okay. Um yeah, I've I've only been down there for Alto so far, but I'm, I know they do a good job with uh, all their events. At- uh, yeah, Charlotte's really inspiration down here uh, for us in Columbia. Um, during that uh, event, the uh, the NC Open, there was over 400 players from about 30 countries, and he was giving out uh, either 20 or th- 20 or 30,000 in prizes. And uh, I've met a couple of people that are going to be lifelong friends, probably. That's awesome. And and. So when you go to Alto, I mean, you had your goals. You want you described it as a warm up for the South Carolina championship. But to what extent is your goal like like I think in Alto in particular, because it's an adult only tournament and there aren't many like that. A lot of people might go, obviously, we want to do well, but there's also a sort of social component. Did you have that in mind or were you like strictly business going in? Um, So I'm. I kind of put my club first before my own personal chess improvement. So another ulterior motive for uh, going up to Charlotte is always to promote my club. And uh, I, I definitely did that. I met a lot of people that used to play in Columbia, and they are really impressed with what they heard about how it's kind of transformed since COVID. 
And uh, it was also pretty neat meeting some of the other uh, social media influencers for chess, such as Dina Belenkai or David Vigarito or uh, JJ Lang. Yeah, um, and, and it was also it was also nice to catch up with Peter while I was up there. Okay, and of course I discussed. So you're going to be on the pod after uh, Fide Master Nate Solon, who um, I managed to win the tournament. But we discussed uh, the the night at the bar uh, a little bit. Did you make it out to to that occasion? Uh, I did. I did go out Saturday uh, and and get my free drink since they hit 100 players at Alto uh, and watched uh, all the Masters play chess and. I just got to talk to him and take it all in. It was awesome. Nice, but did did not um did not play any of them in in blitz for the occasion. Uh, I I did not play any of them in blitz. Um, Sam, Co- I went up with uh, six of my friends from the club. So there was Sam Copeland was there, Paul Copeland, uh, my friend uh, Sean Miller, who's been helping me a lot in my study group. There's also Blaine Huff. I went up with Robert Webb was there. All these people were from my club. There's a few other people from South Carolina there that I knew, and. Uh, I've played Blitz with all of them, especially with Sam Copeland a lot. Uh, so I already kind of knew what I would be getting into if I wanted yeah, to do that. Sam's tough. <laughs> Sam was tough. How long a drive is it? It is only about an hour to an hour and a half. Oh, sure. wow. You know, typical northerner. I didn't. My geography is terrible. I, I didn't realize it was that close. Yeah, it's, uh, it's only about a 90-mile drive up uh, Interstate 77. Okay. And did you, um, did you guys carpool? Um, so I know Paul came, went up with his brother and I went up with Sean, uh, and, uh, Blaine just drove to the tournament every day. Uh, yeah. I wondered about that. It's like, yeah, moderately doable, save some money and, uh, go back and forth. So James, so you play frequently. What's generally your approach to reviewing and deriving lessons from tournament games? And if there is an approach, have you gotten to it yet in terms of assessing this tournament? Um, so immediately after a game, I always plug it into uh, chess.com's analysis and then add it into my library. And then I show uh, some of my club mates the game. We have a Discord server with uh, over 200 members, and we share our games, talk about them. Uh, I get some insights about what I did, what I did wrong. Uh, and because uh, I don't necessarily put a lot of stock into the engine, because I feel like engines don't necessarily understand human chess that well, because I can understand like, oh, this, this would be a good positional move that uh, would break up the position. But if it's going to be like a six-move tactic, I'm not going to put a lot of stat stock into that. Right. Um, and then um, as far as reviewing games, I just kind of like to look at what I did right, maybe maybe an instance or two, what I could improve. Um, it's only It's been less than a week since the tournament, so I haven't had a lot of time to review the games. But uh, one of the games that I did lose was a King's Gambit. And it was against a defense that I've never seen before called the Cunningham defense, where after Black accepts the gambit, then they immediately do Bishop E7. Uh, that was uh, out of what I knew. And so I kind of just tried to play it as a normal swashbuckling King's Gambit game and got burned for it. Okay. So I did read uh, the chapter on that defense from John Shaw's King's Gambit uh, book. Oh, uh, Okay, yeah, it's... Uh, it's it's tough to to know exactly how much to emphasize like when when you have an opening you haven't encountered before so do you feel like it was like this is something that comes up a lot do you feel like it was because of the opening you lost or was it just like the feeling of discomfort sort of set you down a bad path 
Um, so when I when I saw that she was going to do when she played Bishop E7, uh, I saw that there was nothing I could do if she wanted to check me on H4 and prevent me from castling. So I did the Bishop C4 line. Uh, so if she did check me, I could just sidestep to King F1, and I felt like that was all I needed to do uh, as far as being safe, and then I could continue my attack. Uh, and after reviewing that chapter from John Shaw uh, earlier this week, I realized I, I do need to play it more calmly, develop more of my pieces, and then and then I'll be okay. Okay, gotcha. Yeah, and as I recently discussed the King's Gambit with uh, NM Todd Bryant, it's definitely live by the sword, die by the sword, but <laughs> but that lesson will probably serve you well in uh, future games. Absolutely. Uh, I will say that uh, I was a little disappointed that I didn't get to play my Smith Moore Gambit. Oh, uh, you got the swashbuckling repertoire, man. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I usually play very solid, but my friends always tell me that uh, I don't get the initiative well. So I have switched to a Gambit repertoire to kind of learn how to play with initiative. And are you doing that with Black as well? Um, the only Gambit that I, I really play with as Black is the, uh, I think it's called the Godly Gambit out of the Carol Khan. Okay, you. Well, how does that go? <laughs> um, and and I'm not even really that well versed in it. Uh, it's just something I'm kind of kind of trying to um, still grapple with. Uh, my friend Stanley's son showed it to me. Uh, it's I think it's out of the exchange variation where White takes on d5, and you uh, develop your knight to f6 instead of recapturing that pawn. Oh, okay. Yeah, as uh, this came up recently, um, again with Todd, when we were discussing the Halloween Gambit, I used to feel like I had a good handle on, you know, obviously the various openings, but I feel like there's so many Gambits where like content is being designed, especially uh, for newer players that like, you know, if I face so, if I face something dodgy, I don't necessarily think of the name. Um, so I, my ignorance is being re exposed repeatedly, including with the Godly Gambit, which I am now looking up. Yeah, I, as far, I did a quick search on it on YouTube um, maybe a couple of weeks ago, and I th the only real content that I found on it was from uh, Gotham Chess. And okay. So I'll just play it if I remember to play it, and uh, just review it with some quick computer analysis to see where I went wrong. Gotcha. So King's Gambit, Godly Gambit, maybe, well, maybe need some work. You didn't get to play the Smith Mora. Um, in terms of like phases the game of the game or broader lessons, uh, is there anything else? And again, I know you said you haven't had a chance to review everything, but did anything like immediately leap to mind from what, what again, you gain, you gain rating, sounds like you had a good time. So it seemed like it was a good tournament, but nonetheless, we can always learn things. Uh, yeah, I, um, uh... Yeah, I just need to learn when when to sacrifice pieces because I I did lose two games from sacrificing a bishop, uh, and I I need to really just slow down and calculate everything and be more confident when I play something instead of eh, it looks good um, and hope for the best. Yeah. Um, so uh, also, I, I I always get told that for my level, I play a very strong end game, so. Uh, I'm learning that maybe I should just keep my advantageous position and instead of once I get that advantage to um, just kind of milk it instead of just find that knockout and play to my endgame strengths. Okay, so more patience in terms of uh, transitioning to an endgame, 
but when you sacrifice, it sounds like you might play a little more intuitively and need to do a, a bit more calculating. Yes, sir. Yeah, those are very common. I mean, the latter especially, it's, it comes up a lot. It's a very common, um, very common pitfall to to just kind of want to let it fly and see what see what happens. That, that shooting from the cuff. It, yeah. uh, it, when when you feel like you're winning, it feels like you have to do that. And I'm finding that that's not necessarily the case. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's good that overall over the, you know, again, reviewing your rating history, it seems like you've been making slow and steady progress. So, uh, you know, as you contextualize this in terms of like your broader arc, like where do you, where do you see your game? And as someone who's immersing himself in chess, like how do you choose to, to spend your chess time? Um, well, I, uh, like I said, I, I run my club. My club takes a lot of time because we, uh, are serious about growing it and improving the Columbia Chess Club. We really do have a eye for uh, pampering the players as much as possible. Um, so that does take a lot of my time, um, and I'm sure a, a lot all the other organizers uh, can feel that uh, focusing on your club kind of detracts from what you can put into your personal chess. Um, I do study chess on my break at work, and that's usually about all the time that I can get for myself. Um, cause when I come home, I can't really study chess cause I got two young children and got to do uh, family life. Um, I do have chess students, so sometimes I can prepare for them and, uh, that seems to be pretty beneficial. And, uh, I have my chess study group that, that, uh, meets on Tuesdays, but t it's currently on a break while my daughter's in soccer. Um, and other than that, I just play on Thursdays at my club. Well, I mean, it's admirable to me that, that it sounds like you have your, your priorities in order. You know, obviously, we'd all like to improve our games, but it, it's not the most important thing in life. That is true. <laughs> That's true. Um, although sometimes it feels like that when you're in the middle of a game. Especially, yeah. And especially after those tough losses, it just feels like what, what could be more important. But so, again, uh, I appreciate that that you don't have a ton of time to study and uh, you know that you're prioritizing your family when you get home from work but um is it a tough conversation if you ask your your significant other um about going away for a tournament for a weekend like alto or um is your wife pretty uh, supportive um my wife is very supportive about me doing chess as long as i also make time for family and my other responsibilities um so like i said it's been a while since i've traveled for a tournament i think it's been uh, at least a year because my son's a year old now and I I think my last one was before he was born um, and so she was kind of excited for me to go and I did invite her to come up with me but she said that it would just be easier for her to stay home yeah has she ever brought the kids to or uh, she's brought when it was just my daughter she would bring my daughter and we would go do fun things in between rounds okay um, but but with two, it's, it's seeming like uh, that would be too much. Yeah, totally understandable. And did you, I mean, it sounds like you've been to Charlotte before now and probably even, you know, being, being that it's so close, I'm guessing you've been there even in a non-chess capacity. Did did you try to do anything uh, away from the tournament? Did you go out for any meals, anything like that? Oh, yeah. Most of, uh, I, I went out to the uh, original Pancake House, which is uh, right next door to the hotel. Uh, went there like, every morning. That was really good. Uh, most of my friends, we ate lunch together. Uh, and uh, I know we ate 
dinner at the Chinese place, Baoding, which is around the corner from that hotel as well. Uh, and I also got to meet uh, someone pretty cool from the Chess Dojo. His name is uh, Sean McIntosh. Okay. So that, he's just a, a, another student. He played in the championship section, uh, and it was very cool uh, to get to meet him because I just put in the dojo's uh, Discord, that, hey, I'm going here. I'm really excited. And he saw that message and said, hey, I'm going to be there too. Let's meet up. And so he ate dinner with us, and uh, we had a good night talking about chess. Um, and my brother also lives in Charlotte. So on the way home uh, after the tournament, I got to eat dinner with him. At a at a funny place called Cowfish, it's a place that I've sells. Been there. Yeah. Oh, okay. Well, yeah. So it, it it was pretty good. It's a place that sells burgers and sushi. I didn't think that that would be a combination that sounded good, but it was. Yeah, my my one time at Alto, I had a meal there. Yeah, and it it was uh, excellent. Uh, definitely recommend uh, Cowfish. And the last topic, James, for you, I believe, is of course the you know Charlotte's doing great tournaments, full stop, uh, innovative. And, um, you know, as listeners who've heard my interviews with FM, Peter Giannatos would be aware. But obviously the calling card of this particular tournament, at least 21, is that it's the rare tournament that's not overrun with kids. So I'm curious, A, if that like factored into your decision to attend and B, if you could describe if it felt different because of that. Um, it. Let's see. It it definitely felt different because there were not children at the event. Um, the the kids at tournaments will uh, invariably or inevitably, I should say, uh, kind of be distracting, um, even if they're not doing it on purpose. So the the typical distractions that children bring, uh, having the absence of that was very nice. And also, it was a little bit appealing uh, coming into a tournament where I felt like my opposition would be at the strength level that their rating kind of reflects instead of playing someone severely underrated. Yeah, Nate Solong kind of danced around that topic as well. And I do want to say, of course, you know, children are the future. They're the lifeblood of chess. Uh, we we want them playing. Um, and I know Peter has said in other interviews that they're not looking to um, divide the chess community. And I, I support that sentiment as well. So um, I don't think that that we should be having exclusively adult-only tournaments, but uh, it does provide a nice break, in, in my opinion. Yeah, it is a very nice novelty event. I wish that uh, while they weren't necessarily more uh, often, I should I would like to see like different organizations having their own version of one, though. Well, maybe in Colombia. Yeah, maybe in Colombia. Um, uh, yeah. So, um, as far as my own rating goes, and in, in comparison to playing kids, I really do kind of think that since uh, my rating's kind of staying the same, I'm not getting any worse. Uh, and even if I do lose a little bit to uh, the kids that I play, it's not necessarily because I'm bad at chess. It's just they're getting better, or they need to get rating from somewhere. So, there's that. Yeah, no, I I think it's true. And and of course, we all have the ultimate objective about trying to measure ourselves by something other than reading, but it, God knows it's not easy. So <laughs> absolutely. And uh, um, so, yeah, uh, Charlotte runs an amazing event. Uh, Peter runs a really awesome crew. And uh, the Columbia Chess Club uh, is really inspired by everything that they do. Excellent. Okay. So listeners, if you're obviously, if you're passing through Columbia, looking for a place to play chess or even in the area or moving to Columbia, 
uh, be sure to look them up. Anything else in terms of like reaching out to you, you specifically, James, for if uh, listeners are interested? Um, they can email me at jamesbrainmeyer at gmail.com or they can find me on Facebook or they can uh, just talk to my chess club. We're on all the social media as well. Okay, excellent. Well, James, thanks for giving the trip report. It sounds like a good time, and I hope to see you either at an Alto or another tournament sooner or later uh, myself. Oh, that sounds great, Ben. Looking forward to it. Podcast Network.